0: Well, I'm in Walkinstown, in County Dublin to meet a man that originally came from County Louth, but indeed makes his home in Dublin, and he has done for many, many years. You'd probably call him a Louth legend for the last, how many, five or six years? He's been known as a Dublin legend. That's Eamon Campbell. Eamon, great to meet you. Here is my pleasure, my pleasure. Now, I mentioned Dublin Legend, of course, because that's the name of the group that you play with at the moment. Right. But we, we'll get to all of that quite soon. I want to find out a bit about Eamon Campbell himself. I mentioned you're born in County
1: Louth. Give Drada. us a bit of your background. I was born in twenty 29 November 1946, at Lady Lourdes Hospital. As a little kid, Irish music and all that, and Nation once again, all of They were, you know, they were my songs, and I wanted to learn the accordion. But way back then, rock and roll came in. This would have been the early 50s. Of course, RTE had this policy they wouldn't play the devil's music. So the only place you could hear rock and roll was Radio Luxembourg 208. And one night I was having what my man, anti-male automation, used to call me bath, the old aluminium bath in the house, the water boiling and the, the gas and on the open fire. And on came this record. It was, that's all right, mama. Elvis Presley. And I thought, Jesus, I never heard anything. Like there was only about eight like this in my life. And I remember saying to my mother, I don't want an accordion, I want one of them. <laughs> one of them, was, I heard it was a guitar. And of course, I thought it was Elvis playing and singing, you know, with Scotty Moore, if I do it years later. So from then on, the accordion went by the wayside and the ma eventually, when I was about 11, I think she paid two and six a week. And she got me a guitar, but I don't know what it cost at the time. And I just stuck with it, and there was just very few people who could play. And for the first couple of years, I just opened tuning. And I thought it was great, you know, <laughs> I was out doing little, little gigs. And uh, then I copped on the what they call it, Spanish guitar tune. So, again, I, I just start from scratch. And... Uh, I was making, I made fairly decent progress, just through listening to records and the radio, because I'd set up gigging with bands, I was able to afford movies of a little record player and records. And then I played for a band called the Delta Boys in Drogheda, and a man called Louis Smith, He was one of the most wonderful musicians I ever encountered in automation. And I learned more about chords and that of him. But there was a trumpet player called Sid Kearns, and he was big into the local brass and reed band. And they used to run a course in, in music theory. So he got me to do, it was a shilling a lesson uh, because what was happening was come September, loads of kids were joining the brass and reed band, but it was only somewhere to get off the streets for the winter. They had no interest in playing. So they brought in this thing that you had to do this exam and do this course, do the exam. And if you didn't get no, over 95%, you would get an instrument. So I didn't want to the brass, but it's the same theory. And then I bought more books on music, you know, the music and that just kept practising and practising.
0: So from those early days it was the brass band or the brass and reed band
1: in Drogheda that got you inspired to actually go and learn the music? Yeah, yeah. I said, suddenly I could read, you know, and then I joined Damon Ryan, that was in the club men, in uh, be leaving in sixty four. And I joined him it's funny I always remember it was the Friday the thirteenth of November. 1964, and Dermot, if you know, uh, he, he was dead ten years this year, the 22nd. And a few days before he died, I got a taxi from Dublin to RD because I said to me, I'd never forgive myself if I didn't tell me good boys. And uh, we sat in his house in RD, and a uh, great chat, a few tears. And I was, I said it to him, you know, Fred the 13th, and. And he said to me, "You know, him." And he said, um, Fred afraid the 30s must be very unlucky." I said, "I know, you know." He said, "Wasn't a very lucky day for the world of music that I gave you the gig." And I thought that was it was a lovely, great compliment, you know.
0: But he was a fantastic man. There's no doubt about that, Dermot O'Brien. You played with a host of different people, but can I just just take you back a little, just about your family? Was there music in your family? Were there other members of your family? How did you get that interest?
1: No, uh, there was no music. Unfortunately, my father died. I was born on the twenty ninth of November, nineteen forty six. My father died on the third of March, uh, nineteen forty nine. So it was, it was just me, me ma, and me auntie Mae. We lived in Nine William Street, rather. and uh, I don't music. Just I always loved singing, and you know, I don't know what it was.
0: And then you said about learning the instrument, the guitar. You said open tuning as well.
1: I I was that, well, I thought that was a new concept. No, no this, this one that I had, somebody showed <laughs> me, it was a Hawaiian guitar. Saw, yeah. So the first string was D, B, G, D, uh, G, D. So the mouth says just, and then you put your finger over the fifth fret and you got it. The C card. I thought it was great.
0: <laughs> that was fairly convenient, all right. I thought it was maybe a Campbell open tuning that you were talking about. So you were you were you were inspired then to use the ordinary uh, tuning in guitar, of course. That would open up a whole new
1: world for you. Ah yeah. I mean you know, I had to as I say, I was back to square one. I was I came close a couple of times to packing it in, you know. Because especially these bar cards, you know, which I found out years later were you, you use your pulse, <laughs> Um I just persevered and I loved it, and, and I started getting gigs, and and it was great for pulling boards. <laughs> <laughs> the very few guitar players around the time but I could do all the Elvis things. You know? <laughs> so, uh, did you get any formal training on it? Oh no, God, no, 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 not as such. know, no. I went. There was a man, uh, Frank Cassidy. Uh, he 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 could play. I went to him for some lessons, you know. But it, I mean, it wasn't formal, you know. It was, it was just something I loved.
0: So then you joined Dermot O'Brien, as you said. Was that your first real break in the music business? Oh, yeah. So
1: now, now, now I'm a pro. You know, oh, yeah. so I, I stayed with Dermot. Uh, we, we, the whole band left in '68. It was to do with money and the usual things. So we started a, a band called the Torcramm, which wasn't very successful. And then that we went on and we started a, I think it was a twelve-piece band, uh, three saxes and this. And at this stage, you know, I was really into music, and I had been doing little arrangements for Dermot's band, so I wrote all the arrangements for the saxes, trumpets, trombone for this band. So you know, you get a pop tune at the time, and you know, I'd write, I'd write in saxes. and, and it was, it was really interesting because it's, it's, a, it's a great feeling, and uh, when you do arrangements, like you hear the sounds in your head, you write them down on paper, and then when you hear them played, like it's what was, what you heard, you know. And then, uh, so then I came to Dublin, and the rest is history.
0: <laughs> now, tell us about that, though. Uh, when did you come to Dublin, and
1: when did you when did you make that break, let's say, from County North? Well, unfortunately, um, my marriage had broken up. Uh, he got married when he was 18, in 1965, which that was kind of the trend in those days. Uh, but, uh, but I say it was a mistake, but I have three wonderful sons, so I wouldn't change anything. But it was probably music that broke up the marriage, mm. you know. And i I've, the girl I married, Margaret, like I had changed mentally in that, you know. And I, I just, there was no, you'd never ever well, go anywhere in the music business and draw Much as I hate saying that, you had to be in Dublin, you know. So uh, the marriage broke up, so I moved up to Dublin and uh, I was giggling when I was doing session work at this stage. And then I got fed up, and I went over. I lived in America for six months in '74. And I came back from America, and there was a show called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Dream Coat. And a good friend of mine, Des Moore, put me onto Gales of Laughter, which was the Morning Potter summer show on the gaiety, because he had always done that, but he's now in Joseph. So I went in and I met a lady called Thelma Ramsey, she was the musical director. and... Uh, I think with Des's recommendation, of course. I got the gig, and you know, now I'm really in the music scene. And there was a pub, it's still there in Chatham Street, Sheehan's. And that was where all the musicians and actors and everything went. And that's where all the gigs, you know, the, all the fixers were there. And so I have a couple of good stories with that. <laughs> but just tell us about that. What was your role within that show? I was the guitar player in the pit, you know. And that's the first time I ever met Errol Gill and that'll make Ms Earls first um, pit gig as well. Uh, and I remember a bass player called Martin Bulge owned a house in Ranla and I needed a flat. So, he, I, I took one of the flats off him, and we had the first rehearsal for uh, the Scales of laughter show. It was a Friday night, no I remember. And Darby, who said he'd leave me home, because I literally... I'd thrown my stuff into the house that morning. Got a bus into town, into the 80. So gentlemen, there was a, no, there was a, a fair few drinks taken at this stage. It was a bit midnight we And while I driving around, around I, ran like, I don't remember where the fucking house is. <laughs> and I remember to you, I hope you don't want me to say the saying his words. For fuck's sake, Abel? come home and stay in my house. <laughs> and we'll find it tomorrow when it's bright. So that's what I did. So um, I lived, and I lived in Ranelagh around there for years, you know. You did,
0: but that whole scene then in Dublin, you did you become an arranger, then did you become part of a, a, a
1: bigger musical movement? Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was accepted by all the the Dublin mm-hmm. musicians because I don't know if you've found that, but the, well, I don't know how it's like now, but there used to be this thing, in my day, if you, you know, if you went from Dublin, here's this guy, yeah. you know. So you yeah, had kind of that hurdle, but I think with Des. There's a very respected musician, you know, for obvious reasons. And uh, I got on well with everybody. And they had Benny McNeil, who was a wonderful trumpet player, he was the lead trumpet player with the concert orchestra. Like Benny and me got on, like a house on fire. And like Benny and me telling stories, and um, the word culture might come up, and he'd say, Nim it. Nim it. you're not learning that, you're one of us, you're one of us. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, you know, it was... They were like one big family. So you mentioned
0: there now about the concert orchestra. Did you
1: ever play with them yourself? Ah, hundreds of times, hundreds of times. I, uh, I even did the uh, what do you call it? Eurovision in uh, nineteen eighty-one when it was here. Me and Des were the two guitar players. And I play, I even played the symphony. Uh, I played uh, mandolin in at the Wexford Opera Festival in the, what was it called, the City of Mahogany, by Kurt Wilde. <laughs>
0: so it's fair to say that you have a, a fairly eclectic mix of music then done over the years? Indeed,
1: it would be. I love that word. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it perfectly describes you and anyway, your musical experiences, there's no doubt about that. You started into production as well
1: then? Yeah, and I got the whole the life, it's, it's really weird. Noel Galen, Lord to mention Noel was the perfect musician. He really was a wonderful pian- piano player, arranger. And I, I got on great with Noel, and Noel used to give me a lot of gigs. And in fact, see, come the summer, when you were doing session work, all the bands, were that was there busy period, so from mid-June on until September, the work just was very little going. And Noel made me his copyist. So Noel would drop down the whole score and I'd copy out the individual parts. And I learned more from a ranger because his voicings, especially for strings, were, he was amazing. But anyway, Noel used to produce all Brendan Cheyenne's records. And Brendan got this TV series called Nice and Easy. And obviously Noel was his first choice as musical director. But Noel was an employee of RTE. And he was going to be taxed at something like nearly seventy percent, so I think it wouldn't have been worth his while. It? So he suggested me, which I was amazed. So I said I jumped out of a thirteen-week TV series, and when I did that, then the phones started ringing. Would you Would you like to produce a record? Because I mean, you know, was, there's no difference. You know, you had the music at the MD. But what I did find strange about that was. Prior to this, obviously, I'd been one of the the guys playing, but when you were the MD, you were responsible for <laughs> for everything. So, like, suddenly I went. We used to all go down to Madigan's at the breaks, and I suddenly went from I have another point. Please, to saying, like, I oh, lads, lads' man. You have to have them three points with, with a gig to do. You know, it <laughs> just a change. We. So anyway, I started producing records and. Foster and Allen were probably, I mean, they did all their stuff for years. Did a lot with Johnny McAvoy, Brendan Shine, Brendan Grace, geez, the Furies. I know I'm going to leave it. Somebody, <laughs> I even auditioned Daniel O'Donnell for Ritz Records. And I did his first few. Awesome.
0: Well, I did mention the word eclectic. You like the word. It fully describes all of that <laughs> area as well. <laughs> I suppose people really know you nowadays uh, for your part with the Dubliners, and you certainly spent your life in the Dubliners, really, uh, you know, uh, the, the greater part of your musical life.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it was, well, it was like, 25 years of them, you know. I first met them funny in 1967, uh, which is Jesus, 50 years ago this year. And Dermot O'Brien, just come back, he had a big hit in Ireland in 66 with the Merry Playboy. And it was huge with the Irish in England. And the Dubliners had been taken over by a guy called Phil Solomons, a very clever man, great businessman. And we were managed by George O'Reilly. So Solomons got in touch with George and suggested that perhaps they were around the club men would do a concert tour of England which was unheard of for an Irish band, it was all ballrooms in those days, to do a concert tour. And B, and the, the lads, Ronnie, they, they always hated this, being supported by the Dubliners. Yes. And that's, you know, okay, the odd gig they went on for, it, but in general, they were actually support. The thing was, Phil Solomon's owned Radio Caroline, Would you remember, did you ever hear Radio Get the Ship? Mm-hmm. So they had recorded. An, an LP, and there was a song on it called Seven Drunken Nights, and it was played off the air. As I always say, their career the was launched <laughs> on, on uh, Radio Caroline, that's what brought them, obviously. But during that concert tour, I mean, we played the Albert Hall, we did all the, the big concert halls, the Empire, Liverpool. It was amazing, you know, it was an eye opener. But you were on tour. You weren't playing with the Dubliners that time. No, 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 no. I was with Daniel Brown, and but we just became great. I became really friendly with them all. But Ronnie and Luke, and Mr Luke became great drinking partners when I moved to Dublin because he drank in chains, and me and him had nothing got to do with the Dubliners I'm music. Just gaggling, beer cracking, you know. No,
0: and socially, of course, you would have been great friends that way. But then. That was your earliest meeting with the dubs. How did you get involved with them musically? Did you join them or did you work with them in studio?
1: They came to me in '86, uh, Ronnie and John, said they're going to be 25 years together and, and they wanted to make an LV and they'd like me to produce it. So I thought, nice one, yeah. Yes, I heard I was thrilled, you know, because I, I really had a great time with them. There was something about them, they, they reminded me of myself. Uh, you, you know we're chatting about, it and I said, "Look, lads, I think you really you should invite people. Guess, uh, drop a list of people you think you influenced." But at in the back of my mind was this group that my eldest son had got me to listen to, oh, the Pogues. And I remember thinking, "Well, he got the Pogues and the Dumbbells together, man. This would be, you know, because much as I hate saying it, the popularity on the continent was on the wane. It was uh, the promoters told me that." Later. So Ronnie's first reaction was, The Pogues! My yes! <laughs> <laughs> and that's a fact. So that was July. So I said to them, Look, we'll have to start recording in September if you want to have this out for 87. So let let me know. So we got guests, in fact, right. I think in the Wing, is that right? Yeah. Kuna, yeah. Isn't that right? That's it, yeah. uh, the Furies, the Pogues, obviously. Who else was that? Christy Moore. I'm leaving now. I'm going to leave their people now. That's just say anybody that was involved in the music business that was to the fore were involved in that. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, so anyway, we went over to England, did the Irish Robo with the Pogs, and I can't remember, what the, there was a B-side, the Mountain Dew, I think. Uh, I remember bringing the, remember the big two-inch back because I wanted to mix it in Dublin and that. And I missed the flight purposely because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do, have all this having done. And Mr John Shane booked into a, an airport hotel, and we were sharing the room. And I think he he thought I was mad because I'm sitting on the bed bouncing with this. Do you know what I have, here? Do you know what I have? He's, he's looking at me, at the and the funny thing was the pog. Well, managed boy, again, a lot of mercy, and he only joined there before Christmas, Frank Murray. And when I did Jesus Christ Superstar in the state in Finsbury, Frank was the stage manager. So, you know, Frank was a Doby's mouth, Camden Street. And there's Robert McGrattan, they had a, a record label and the pressing plant and all that. And Frank was married to Robert and Dan's sister. So small work that's the family so but did you feel that you had something really really ah. special I knew I, I, I just knew it this is this is a hit man you know and, uh, then Shane heard that they were playing in Munich the Dubliners were going to the German tour in, I think it was November they were playing the same venue in Munich on the same night but the Dubliners were playing upstairs in kind of a small concert hall, and the Pogues were downstairs in a kind of rock, a huge, pretty place, all standing, and and they weren't on going on until midnight. Now there were two separate gigs, but nothing to do, Shane. But when he had anyone has to come, so the lads asked, you know, can you come over? So uh,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: why not? So I we went over for the weekend. Then when I was there, we had a great night with the Pogues. Uh that's when Barney found out that we had recorded with them because we hadn't told Barney because John and Ronnie did, didn't think Barney would go with us. And uh, I don't think he was too impressed with the Pogue's rendition of, shall we say, or traditional music, <laughs> which to me was a load of bollocks. Anyway, that's where they are there. Um, so, I, I mean, he, he was, as so, he, he, he thought, I said, he's up the stage playing fucking punk band, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, Anyway, they asked me would I stay for the rest of the tour, which I did. And uh then we came back to her obviously and, and it's Christmas and suddenly the late late show came up and uh I got the phone call, we're on the late late and <laughs> I suddenly found myself a member of the Doctors. <laughs> Honest to God. It was I've enjoyed it now, because yeah, the studio thing you know, just to go back to that, like I did that from what seventy four to eighty seven? It's a totally different. You get great satisfaction, but there's nothing like playing in front of people. You know that's there's a you know you see them enjoying themselves, and so I'm I i do not regret going back on the road. <laughs>
0: Thank God, I thought maybe you'll <laughs> never get sense, so that's what you're saying to me. Well, I would never get sense anyway, so wasn't <laughs> you. So look at, let's just, so that was your first involvement, which, which happened actually in Germany as it, as it happens. Members of the Dubliners, I'd just be curious, just give us your own take on, I just want to go through the names. Like were you, Did you have much to do with Ciarán? Did you ever meet him Ciarán Burke?
1: No, I, I met Ciarán, I knew, I knew Ciarán through 67, uh, you know lovely man probably the original bohemian you know uh, it was tragic what happened him getting the brain hemorrhage and all that you know because he couldn't have missed out it was all happening then you know so now I know the lads looked after him paid his bills and that but uh, Karen, he was unique <laughs> that's all I can say you know. but a, a lovely individual and a nice man to meet yeah really really genuine guy
0: Um who should I say? Well, you mentioned Luke there earlier. Tell us about your relationship with Luke and about him as a as a person.
1: Luke to me was just... He was great fun to be with. He was highly intelligent. He wouldn't have been what's called well-educated, but he was very well-read and um, he was very much for the downtrodden. And he did a lot for people... You know, less fortunate themselves than nobody ever ever knew. about. I mean that there was one thing. There used to be a guy, he was a busk on a Connaught Street bridge. I think he played accordion, and he was referred to as Blind Peter. I think he was from Belfast, but he had a, a wife and family, and they were. I don't know if they're quite homeless like the way things are today, but Luke had a, a basement in Dartmouth Square, and he got the whole thing done up, and. Bl- Blind Peter and his wife, I think three kids, have lived there for years. You know, I think. Was only, nobody ever knew that about Luke. And his singing. I mean, when Luke sang a song, it, as Ron used to say, that was a definitive version. You'd never. Uh, loads of people have tried, but you'd never better him. You know. He just had in an amazing uh, way. I mean, if you listen to his version of, say, The Rocky Road to Dublin, most people are going to do it very fast. Luke did it. And he just had this you know, the the power, of the punch. Yeah, he was he was a great guy. And from your own personal point of view, did you have a good personal relationship with him? Ah oh, Jesus, yeah. Ah we were great. We were great drinking buddies. You know, funny. It used to be him. Don McCann Do you ever remember Don? And Gabriel Bourne. Gabriel goes went down too. I Maybe mean, I gave give up the drink donkey's years ago now you know but that was kind of the and Des Moor of course I mean Louis Stewart a lot of they're all <laughs> and I,
0: part of a dying breed Gerard well on. I tell you part of some breed at the same <laughs> time I tell you when you think about those people Ronnie Drew like a great man <laughs> too larger than life
1: me and Ronnie as a person you know the, the real Ronnie he, Drew he was one of the most genuine nicest Guys, and his wife, let him they were wonderful people. I just, I loved them. And I said, I have a lovely photograph there of me and Ronnie, which is one of my pride. I <laughs> I I couldn't sing Ronnie's praises high enough. He had an amazing voice too. Ah, oh, didn't he just? And I, he, he always said it was the best thing he ever recorded. Uh, Dolphin Records got me to do an, an LP with him in nineteen seventy nine funny, before he rejoined the Dubliners uh, and was called, I think, Guaranteed Drew. But Ronnie always said it was the best thing he ever did. It was kind of a concept LP, is that what they call them. You should try and get a copy but it's fucking great. It really is. Did you say that's on the Dolphin label? Yeah, it's on
0: Dolphin. Maybe, maybe there's something to revisit at some stage. we we'll go through the Dubliners. John Sheehan, of course, fiddle player. John's actually uh,
1: my daughter, Nave. John and Mary are her godparents, you know. And
0: yeah, well, the other member, you mentioned him already, of the Dubliners, is uh, Barney McKenna,
1: one of a kind, but a very special one of a kind. Ah, the times I had with Barney, yeah, was, uh, especially in my early days with him, uh, some of the things. There was more times, even at Dublin airport, I remember, uh, announced, you'd hear announcements. Well, Mister Drew, Mister McKenna, and Mister Campbell, please come to gate. <laughs> you Your flight is Your boarding. Off, it's boarding. Uh, but
0: so, I, so you were easily distracted, were
1: you? Oh, very. Yeah. <laughs> but I tell you, there was one tune Barney used to do, Er Aaron, the K he. and me and him. To me, there was something magic. And I always remember in nine, the two, uh, uh, 2012, the 50 years of the Dubliners, and we were doing the sound check in the Albert Hall, and Barney started playing, and the sound was just... OK, the theatre was empty, and, and I remember saying to Barney, you have to do that tonight. Oh, Josephine. I said, please. Oh, you know, he was... So his his banjo spot came up and uh, I used to go over and sit beside him and say, Barney, I said, <laughs> And I tell you, that died, it was just pure magic. He died about, about a month later, you know, little did I know. But, uh, that yeah, Barney was Barney, as you say, know, he was. He well, certainly
0: was, Barney. He was a brilliant, he was hugely influential, of course, outside of that, with the, the way he played the tenor banjo, people oh, just uh, all, all over the country I developed mean, their he, music after him. He probably brought, brought it to the fore in Irish music, didn't he? No question about it, he was yeah. the father figure of yeah. all of that. What, uh, Eamon Campbell, was your most memorable gig with the Dubliners?
1: Jesus, that's hard to... That's a good
0: Apart from that night in, in when you when you met them and you played with the pogs and that and you did all the late late shows and all of that. <laughs> I, I just nothing they would okay. I it was
1: like a great roller coaster ride. You never really went to the States, did you? We did in eighty mm-hmm. Uh and we just we were there for five or six weeks. And it was just the travelling here and that it was a conscious decision made. No America, no Australia, because you know you have been, been on the road um you need to go for at least four weeks, six weeks to make money, yeah. I mean you, you know its okay, it's great seeing these places, But because all the overheads, so none of us wants to be away from home for that long, so
0: so of course you stayed and worked so much you could you could stay in Europe all the time if you wanted to anywhere, yeah. but I think that maybe the Irish audience, maybe for the Dubliners or Irish music audience, mightn't fully realise the popularity
1: of the Dubliners across Europe. Yeah, I know, it always sounds as if you're blowing your own trumpet or horn.
0: Blow away.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) A lot of people in Ireland have this, and I call it a misconception now, that it's Irish music or Irish folk music or music that's popular all over the continent. It's not, it's the Dubliners. Mm. That's all I'd say, you know, and it sounds real big-headed when you were part of it. But, I mean, it, it was something about the Dubliners. Ronnie used to say he thought it was the way we looked, that we looked like somebody had told tell the boss to fuck off, and they'd never dream of doing that, you know. But whatever it was, I mean, with, this, with the Dublin legends now, I mean, our audience on, on the continent, I'd say 70% of them are 35 years d- and down. No, it's, it's, it's a whole new generation coming, and they're really into it, and it's working. We're playing kind of rock clubs, and uh, when I say rock clubs, yeah, you know, but the people stand up, and there's bar, and uh, they're jumping, and they're bopping around. It's great to see. Uh, it's interesting you should mention that because
0: I saw the Dubliners play in Berlin. Maybe it was twenty. 20- 11 Around that time, it was just before you played in the Tradfest in Temple Bar itself in Christchurch. That's right. We went to see you because you were involved in the European launch of Tradfest in Berlin, Yes. I a 3,000 seater in the middle of Berlin. Yeah, and three, G- the, what was it called? Temple The Temple yeah. Well, uh, and it full to capacity, and people came from across Europe actually for that particular gig. Yeah, but I was amazed myself at. The younger generation, you yeah. had the middle generation you had an older generation, you yeah. had
1: three different generations in that audience that's you know, that's I mean, it's the amazing thing, you know, and my holiday when when John James decided to resign and we said we were going to carry on I like to think I would have loved to have called the group the spirit of the Dubliners, but that was another story because that's, I think what we actually are you know, we are the spirit of the Dubliners. You know, other people can think they are, but I think we are.
0: Uh, well, I mean, there's nobody that could actually question that particular uh, sentiment because you became the Dublin Legends. That was your, the new name. For one reason or another, you had to adopt a slightly different name, the Dublin Legends, and still as popular as, as ever. You can tour Europe just about as often as you're capable of doing it yourselves. That's
1: true, yeah. I mean, my. <laughs> capabilities are getting, I'm getting a bit slower but uh, my old, my motto always has been bop till you drop now I'm not doing too much bopping or dropping
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's probably critical right. God.
1: <laughs> but who are the members of the Dublin legends uh, Sean Cannon who was with uh, the Dubliners obviously even longer than me uh, pa- Paul Watchhorn because Patsy decided he'd uh, pack it in and I think it was 2014 and and uh, Amazing guy, man, Jerry O'Connor. I mean, Jerry on the banjo to me is he's taken the, the whole thing another level and his fiddle playing. And we get on great, which is very important. You know, we have a great bit of fun on stage, and that's what it is. And I think if, if the fun ever goes out of playing music, you should pack it in, you know. Yeah. You know, sometimes people stay in it for the that money. That's the only reason, man. You shouldn't be there. Well, I don't think it's the only reason that you're
0: involved. But as the man said one time, it does help. There's no question about it.
1: It does. It does. you know, where's the alcoholic coke. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but for yourself, then you do the tours with the with uh, the Dublin Legends. Uh, you go when you please yourselves. You come back. So an easier life, you know. But do you do any work outside of that? Do you do any musical work outside of that? No,
1: uh, no. I, I, I don't have time, and the ill health. Like I had lung cancer four years ago, which I survived, obviously, <laughs> and uh, and then they found there was a bone as I had TB, some form of TB, but I also have a thing called COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which will probably eventually kill me. Uh, it means your, your lung, well, it's in my case, my lung, <laughs> it's all perfor- little perforations, and uh, I was seventy there at the end of last year. I have a little scooter, kind of a small. Wheelchair thing, which is great, gives me great freedom. I tried giving up the cigarettes more times in the last year. I got down to two a day and I was miserable.
0: Finally, I, I, wanted, I want to actually touch on this before we wrap it up. <coughs> you mentioned your wife and you also mentioned kids.
1: Did they ever follow you into the business? No. And I i, and kind of, I won't say I'm sorry they didn't. Because it's, it's a precarious way of life. It might, if it was tough in my day, boy Jesus, I'd hate me starting out today, because there's so many wonderful musicians, groups out there, and there's not enough gigs. So, I mean, I, I know groups are playing for buttons, you know, and it's, you know, it's a different, the whole thing has changed, I mean, the digital era, and I think the fun's gone out of it. I, mean, I remember Benny McNeil that I mentioned, and Johnny Tay. Johnny's still alive. Another wonderful arranger, trombone player, with the orchestra. And, and both of them said to me they had retired from the construction. The fun was going to, all the new crop musicians there. you know. In my day, it, it was fun. I used to enjoy going out to RT with the lads, you know. Be, as uh, Tommy Tezesco. He was a famous session musician in West Coast America. Said about session work, it's 95 percent boredom and five percent terror. You know, but even though you get the five percent terror with the with the orchestra, you still enjoyed it. You're having fun. That's all gone. You know, it's become dare I say a business. You know. Well,
0: you did mention the idea of, you know, you'd want to be getting a bit of money out of it when you'd be at it anyway. But certainly, fantastic times for you, great memories, an awful lot done actually in those years when you considered the broad mix of music that you were involved with. When you were doing all this music and working with Dermot O'Brien or working with orchestras or working with other solo musicians in studios, did you ever have
1: what they might call a normal job? I never had a job, a normal job in my life. I just played music all my life. In fact, my mother, if I don't mind me sending you this, on her deathbed, she woke up and she looked at me and said, Emma, I said, yeah, ma." I never regret that she didn't get a real job. She couldn't see playing the guitar and there no, no pension. What did you say to her?
0: Nah, I'm happy. You're a member of the Dublin Legends now and as I mentioned, at the very beginning. It's a real pleasure to meet you and thanks for talking to us on the Tradfest podcast. Uh, Aaron Campbell, Louth legend to Dublin legend. Thank you very much,
1: Aaron. It was a pleasure.